Okay, so we've been going through a study over the previous three weeks of Passion Week. That's the week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. And what we've done so far is look through these kind of four parts. The first week we looked at the supernatural origin of the Bible and God's complete control of history, seeing how God has told the future dramatically in advance. Hundreds and even thousands of years before events took place, God had recorded them in Scripture with incredible precision. At the second week, we were looking at the timings and details of Passion Week, how everything in that one week fit together. And it, it is an important study because so much of the Gospels is centered around this one week. Half of John's Gospel itself is focused on just this one week. And in the third study, we looked at the accuracy and the harmony of the Gospels. We looked at the various narratives, and it's incredible how we draw things out as we look at these side by side of those events that led up to the resurrection and then, of course, the uh, also the crucifixion and then, of course, the resurrection itself. Well, what we're going to do this morning to conclude the study is to look at this topic of the reality and the power of the resurrection. That, that's where we're going. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But just to give you a summary, just to remind you, or if you've not been with us, this is what we've looked at so far. The fact that God is outside of time. The Bible clearly states that. And he's revealed the future before it happens to serve as undeniable proof of his existence. I mean, God says, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 states that very clearly. God says, there is no other God. I'm the only God, and this is how you know. And he says, because he can tell the end from the beginning. Now, in the Bible, God speaks through direct, specific prophecy. Things that are very clearly foretold of future events. But also, God uses types and shadows or anticipatory models. So again, if we were to build a model of something, it would be a a, a representation of what we intend to do at the end, what, what our finished project is going to be. Well, God has given us those types and shadows and models to show us what the ultimate fulfillment will be. And we see that in a number of ways. Now, as I said, the details of Passion Week were recorded over a thousand years. Just think of that. We can say that so quickly, not even take really note of it mentally, but a thousand years before they took place, they were recorded in God's Word. And specifically, we see that through the Feast of Israel, all of which pointed to Jesus. Paul makes that point in Colossians for us. Now, we saw, looking specifically, that in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel there gives Daniel an incredible prophecy. It's the future of the nation of Israel, right up until the time Jesus returns at the second coming. But included within that, we're given the very day that Jesus would present himself to Israel as their Messiah. Now, that was given 500 years before it happened, at a time when Babylon was the ruling empire when only 50,000 Jews or so had just returned to the land. And Daniel's praying for his nation, and he receives this vision, this this prophecy from Gabriel. Again, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and allowed himself to be worshipped as the Messiah. And it was the only day in his entire ministry that he allowed people to worship him. Every other time, he said, you know, people, he did miracles, he said, see thou tell no man. Jesus always kept it quiet, didn't want people to make a big thing of it. After the feeding of the 5,000, the people wanted to come and make him king. And he just walks away from them. He doesn't allow it. But this one day, he sends the disciples to go and get a donkey. He sits on the donkey, he rides into Jerusalem. People are worshipping him. The Pharisees get what's going on. They say, stop it. Don't tell your disciples not to do this. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Because if they're quiet, even the stones would cry out. And that triumphal entry on the 10th day of the month was the very day that the sacrificial lambs that have been growing for a number of years on the fields of Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem, those sacrificial lambs have been taken 
and inspected and ready for sacrifice. And of course, in the Feast of Cells, we see the Feast of Passover, it foreshadows Christ's sacrificial death. It was on the 14th day of the month, exactly as God had told Moses it was to be. And Jesus, of course, was able to celebrate both the Passover with his disciples and be the Passover himself because of the Jewish day beginning in the evening. So for us, the 14th doesn't begin until midnight, typically. The 13th, you get to midnight, becomes the 14th. Well, for the Jews, when it gets to, to 6 p.m., sundown, the evening begins for them, then it becomes the, the next day, the 14th in this case. And so Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, but still the next day, in, in our mindset, is still the same day in the, the, the Jewish calendar. And so Jesus is also able to die on the Passover, becoming our Passover, as Paul says. The lambs had to be killed. The word in uh, Exodus chapter 12 is bayan, the, the word that Moses gives between the evenings. There was a 24-hour window in which the lambs had to be killed. And again, Paul states in 1 Corinthians that Christ became our Passover. Incredible details being fulfilled. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the next day following the Passover, obviously as Jesus gets the evening, Jesus is put into the tomb, into the ground. As it becomes the 15th, Jesus made that comment in John 12, 24, that unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And then, of course, the feast of first fruits, his resurrection. On the 17th day, Jesus rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. And again, this is incredible because 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says that Jesus became the first fruits of all that slept. This day, by the way, was not just any old day. It was the anniversary in advance of the day the ark, Noah's ark, came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. As new life touched down on earth and began effectively from that point, after the flood, destroying everything that had been before. Well, it's the same day, in the, it's the anniversary in advance, that Jesus rises from the dead, signaling new life for all who will put their trust in him. So, again, we've seen this, we've gone through this a lot over the last few weeks, uh, looking at the details of Passion Week. But the really incredible thing is, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. So if you're ever confused what the gospel is, this is it. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the, the 14th. He died on the 14th according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? All the Scriptures have spoke about the Passover and many others. And that he was buried. When was he buried? On the 15th. And that he rose again, this time on the 17th, according to the Scriptures. To the Gospel, all fulfilled in this short window of time. Okay, so we're going to go into this final session. And as I said already, the, the real topic here is the power of the resurrection. And this comes from Philippians 3 verse 10. Paul said there that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? What was Paul trying to allude to in that? What is the power of Jesus' resurrection? Well, to help us, I like this comment from Albert Barnes. He said this. He says, that is that I may understand and experience the proper influence which the fact of his resurrection should have on the mind. Let's just stop for a second and think. Jesus rose from the dead. That is the most incredible event in the history of mankind. Yet, we, we know that Jesus brought some people back from the dead, but they ultimately subsequently died Again, Jesus rose from the dead to die no more. Jesus defeated death. You know, we, we struggle with death. People have said, you know, well, why doesn't Jesus or why doesn't God solve the problem of hunger? 
the problem of wars or so on, or sickness. But Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of hunger. That wasn't our greatest need. Jesus didn't come the first time to bring peace, not in terms of the way the world thinks, the absence of conflict, because that wasn't our greatest need. Jesus didn't come to get rid of disease and sickness because that wasn't our greatest need. Jesus came to defeat the power of death because that is our greatest need. And that is exactly what he did. Albert Barnes goes on and says this, that influence would be felt in imparting the hope of immortality, in sustaining the soul in the prospect of death by the expectation of being raised from the grave in like manner and in raising the mind above the world. And he says, there is no one truth that will have greater power over us when properly believed than the truth that Christ has risen from the dead. Can you imagine the impact on the disciples when they finally realized that Jesus really was alive? You see, Paul contends that a specific historical event is the basis of Christianity. Of course, that being the resurrection. And if that event is not true, Christianity itself is not true. Christianity is not based on Christ's teaching, his character, or the numerous miracles in his life, but on events that took place in that garden some 2,000 years ago. Everything stands or falls with that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in the community at that time that were saying resurrection is impossible, doesn't happen. And he's saying, well, Jesus rose. He says, but if there be no resurrection, okay, let's just go with you for a minute, let's just entertain that, that thought. If there is no resurrection, well then Jesus didn't rise. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You know, amazingly, there are Christians. There was a thing on the BBC a little while ago, an article, and they'd interviewed various Christians, and they're saying there was a number of them that don't believe in the resurrection, and they're saying, well, that's okay. No, it's not. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are wasting our time. And Paul says, yeah, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified, Paul and the apostles, have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if it so be that the dead raised not. He said, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. And that's the biggest problem of all. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he wasn't who he said he was. He couldn't have paid for our sins, and we are still facing God on judgment day for everything we've ever thought, said, or done. That's the biggest problem of all. Then they which also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. You know, the hope that we have for those that have gone before, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is no hope. And if in this life only we have hope, in Christ we are of all men most miserable. Now, you may have met Christians that appear most miserable regardless. Um, that's not the way we should be. We should be full of joy, of, of hope, of this new life. But the reality is, you know, if we don't have hope in Christ, if there is no resurrection, then the believe it, we're always just stupid, aren't we? But of course, as Paul goes on to say, but now Christ is risen. He doesn't say, we think he is, or we hope he is, or you know, Peter and a few others said that he was and we will trust. No, Paul says, he is. How does Paul know? Because he met him. Josh McDowell, author of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, said this, everything that Jesus Christ taught, lived, and died for depended upon his resurrection. 
B. Shelley, uh, Church History and Plain Language, a great book. He says, First Corinthians fixes belief in the historical resurrection of Jesus as an indispensable basis of salvation. That's it, it all hangs on that. I like this quote. Again, Josh McDowell, says, All but four of the major world religions are based on mere philosophical propositions. Of the four that are based on personalities, rather than a philosophical system, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. Abraham, the founder of Judaism, died about 1900 BC, but no resurrection was ever claimed for him. The original accounts of Buddha never ascribed to him any such thing as a resurrection. In fact, in the earliest accounts of his death, we read that when Buddha died, it was with that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. Muhammad died on, the, on June the 8th, 632 AD, at the age of 61, in the city of Medina, where his tomb is visited annually by thousands of devout Muslims. All the millions of Jews, Muslims and Buddhists agree that their founders have never come up out of the dust of the earth in resurrection. You know, there's a tomb in Jerusalem that is also visited annually by thousands of people. But you know why they visit it? They visit it because it's empty. Because there is no body there. Josh McDowell also quotes Theodosius Harnack and says, where you stand with regard to the fact of the resurrection is, in my eyes, no longer Christian theology. To me, Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. Again, Josh McDowell says, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or is the most fantastic fact of history. You know, it is so solidly proven and demonstrated that this is, really is a historical event. We, we need not have any doubt whatsoever. Josh, by the way, Josh McDowell started off as a non-Christian, as a non-believer. He set out to disprove the Bible, and he thought it would be easy just to show that the resurrection didn't happen. In his studies, he became so overwhelmed by the evidence that he became a Christian. And he's not the only one. Let me read this. Sir Edward Clark said this, As a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the First Easter Day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured a verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence. And a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effects. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. This isn't just a belief that some sad people that just need something to hold on to are followed up some great minds have investigated and looked at all the details behind this, and their conclusion is exactly what the Bible says. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, history records that these two young men, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, went up to Oxford. They were friends of Dr. Johnson, of dictionary fame, and Alexander Pope in the Swimmer Society. They were determined to attack the very basis of the Christian faith. So Littleton settled down to prove that Saul of Tarsus was never converted to Christianity and West to demonstrate that Jesus never rose from the tomb. Sometime later, they met to discuss their findings. Both were a little sheepish, for they had both come to similar and disturbing conclusions. Littleton found, on examination, that Saul of Tarsus did become a radically new man through his conversion to Christianity, and West found that the evidence pointed unmistakably to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. 
And these are people that didn't go out to try and prove the Bible. They went out with exactly the opposite intent. And because of the evidence, they became Christians. So again, because of the evidence. The fact that God raised Jesus up from the grave demonstrates his acceptance of Christ's propitiation for us, Christ's payment for our sins. The fact that we're told that God raised up Jesus from the dead. And and the resurrection is a declaration that we're justified. That's why it's such an incredible thing for us. Not just the fact that somebody rose from the dead, but it is a declaration that our sins are forgiven if we put our trust in Jesus. Romans 4, picking up verse 24, we're told that righteousness shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. You get that? Righteousness is given to you as a gift. You, know, you who sit here this morning, and if we could just put your life up on the screen and we could play back the history of your life, everything you've ever done, said, or thought, you'd probably be very embarrassed. I'm sure we all would. But you know what? God says, well, tell you what, let's just, we'll get rid of that and we're going to replace it with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's just an incredible gift that we're given. And we're told he was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. See, the resurrection, as we just said, brings new life. The resurrection also brings a saving power to others. Look at this. In John 20, verse 23, we're told, Jesus said this to the disciples, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. This is one of those verses that people get all kind of messed up and, and get very concerned about. What, what is this saying? It's not the power to remit sins directly. We don't suddenly have the authority to annul somebody's sin. That's not what this is saying. Only God through Christ can do that. But this follows the giving of the Holy Spirit. You see, the disciples were to go out in the power of the Spirit, to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, any who would respond to the teaching of the disciples, well, it's their sins that would be remitted. But those who rejected the gospel, well, their sins would be retained. Nothing complicated about it. You and I have this power. We can go and preach the gospel to people. If they repent, if they put their trust in Jesus, their sins are remitted. If they choose to reject the gospel... Well, their sins are retained and they'll have to face God on judgment day and answer for everything they've ever said, done and thought. We read in John 20 that Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, I'm not sure whether John just adds that because he finds it comical or not, but that's apparently what they also called him, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's interesting because the difference between Thomas and the others was that Thomas had not received the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus was resurrected, when Jesus met with the disciples, first of all, that first resurrection Sunday evening, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Thomas wasn't there. He hadn't received the Holy Spirit. He did not believe because of evidence or anything else. I mean, these are his best friends he's just been with three and a half years. They've gone through all sorts of things together. They're all telling him the same thing. Now, the reason he doesn't believe is because this is a spiritual thing. And we're told that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Thomas didn't believe because the natural man can't believe. We need the Holy Spirit to help us understand. And we're told after eight days again, the disciples were within and Thomas was with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. And then said he to Thomas, 
Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believe it. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. What a moment for Thomas. He showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, saying, Receive you the Holy Ghost. You see, this is what had happened. Jesus had breathed on them. They'd received the Holy Ghost. They had effectively been born again at that moment on the resurrection Sunday evening. Back in Genesis chapter 2, we're told verse 7, that the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. God had formed the body, but suddenly man becomes alive. Not just physically, but spiritually alive. As God breathes into him, this ruach, this breath of God, the Spirit. Genesis 2.17, we were told, if you remember, that the truth of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, physically, man started to die from the point that Eve and then subsequently Adam ate of the fruit. But spiritually they died straight away. How do we know that? Because immediately they go and try and find covering. They go and try and find some leaves to cover themselves. They recognize that this covering that once was there, this spiritual clothing that they had, had gone. They've been clothed in the glory of God. And suddenly that spiritual life has gone and they recognize their nakedness. Not just a physical nakedness, but spiritually. Something had died in them and they recognized it immediately. Hebrews 12.9 though speaks and says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. He says, Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? That's whom God is. He's the Father of spirits. And through him, through this gift of the Holy Spirit, we can be born again. But that only came following the resurrection. So again... The resurrection brings new life and the guarantee of justification. The resurrection brings saving power to others. But also the resurrection empowers the believer and removes doubt. You know, as we read earlier, the facts of the resurrection, the, the reality of this, gives me incredible confidence. Now, just again, remember what we looked at. That the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews. Well, I want you to consider this transformation. We're just going to look at three quick examples as we just draw to a close. Because Acts chapter 4, verse 6 to 10, we're going to read this now. Thinking again of those disciples, this transformation. Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and these have been two, the two that have been again instrumental in getting Jesus arrested and crucified. And John and Alexander, as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, by what power, this is talking to Peter and John, by what power and by what name have you done this? They'd healed a man. They'd been lame. And they bring them together. Now, these are disciples that have been hiding for fear of the Jews. And now they're not just standing before Jews, they're standing before the top Jews, the high priests. And then Peter. But notice, this is the key thing. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Ghost. Said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand before you whole. You see, it's that faith in the resurrected Jesus. In Luke 24, 49, we read there, Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And this isn't just the born-again experience. This is speaking of something that was yet to come. This is something that happened after they'd been born again. And Jesus said, there is a power coming that I will give you. This is empowering after they'd received the Holy Spirit. We get to the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. This is just before Jesus ascends to his Father. And he says to the disciples, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. See, Jesus focuses them on the task in hand. They do ask other questions. He brings it back to this point. And this is what he says, that you're going to be witnesses unto me. And see, this is the purpose of the power that was to be given to them. You see, our mission is to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, witnesses of his resurrection. See, back in John 14, we read, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on me the works that I shall do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. This is another one of those verses that people get very kind of concerned about. What is this saying? A lot of people try and misapply this in all sorts of ways. A very quick little study on this one. Jesus doesn't say we're going to do greater miracles, despite what people on Christian television might try and tell you. Uh, that's not what we're going to be doing. We're not going to be doing greater miracles than Jesus did. Jesus rose from the dead. We're not going to be doing greater miracles than Jesus did. But greater works. The works in Greek is mesion. It means in greater degree. That's, that's what it's saying here. And that word works is ergon. It's toil or as an effort or an occupation. So let me ask you this question. What was Jesus' occupation or work? Because if we know what that was, and then we're told we're going to do greater, then we'll know exactly where we're going. Well, we have a number of scriptures that tell us. John 5.20 For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things, and himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. And this is the first time this word, ergon in the Greek, is mentioned in John's Gospel. And they're from the Father as a witness to the people. Okay, back in John 5.36 says, But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works, this is Jesus speaking, For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So the works were not of Jesus, they're of the Father. The Father has given them. And it's to be a witness of who Jesus was. John 10.25 Jesus answered them and told them, and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. He's saying that you don't believe, but the works testify and are a witness of me. So here again, the purpose of the works is explained. And they are of the Father, but the miracles that Jesus did were to convince the people that he was the Son of God. I God manifest in the flesh. So this whole idea of works is directly associated with witness. So again, this whole idea of these greater works, John ten thirty seven. For if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So regardless of people's initial reaction to him, Jesus points people to the works as evidence that he was God. Again, the works, the witness that he's given, the testimony. So what's the purpose of the works? 
to witness to the fact that Jesus is God. That's what we're to do. Greater works are we to do because we are to witness to the whole world that Jesus is God. Why? Because we know that he rose from the dead. Acts 1 verse 8, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me. And this is the command that's given to us in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Well, that was covered by the early church. But now we're in that last bit, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we are to be witnesses. Now, just a couple of last two examples. So Peter, we see this incredible transformation with Peter's life, going from being frightened and timid to standing before the very people he was afraid of and boldly declaring that Jesus was alive. Well, Pilate, you may think, is a strange example. But this is really interesting because some years ago, we, there was discovered this manuscript, which apparently is still held in the Vatican, written by Pilate himself. And I'm just going to quote from George um, Sluter here. He said, Important testimony of Pontius Pilate recently discovered being his official report to Emperor Tiberius concerning the crucifixion of Christ. There's the, the web link on the bottom there. When I put this up on the web later, you can have a look at this if you want. It's all online. You can look at this in detail. I'm just going to read some of the things from it. Justin Martyr, in his first apologies, one of the early church fathers for the Christians, which was presented to Emperor Antonius Pius in the year AD 138, having mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus and some of its attendant circumstances, says, and that these things were done so you may know from the acts made in the time of Pontius Pilate. He refers to these things that Pilate himself had testified to. Also, Tertullian. He says, the learned Tertullian in his apology for Christianity about the year 200, after speaking of our Saviour's crucifixion and resurrection and his appearance to the disciples who were ordained by him to publish the gospel over the world, thus proceeds. Of all these things relating to Christ, Pilate himself, in his conscience already a Christian, sent an account to Tiberius, then emperor. We've got historical records separate to this that tell us that Pilate had sent a document to Tiberius about these events regarding Christ. Now, this document, I'm going to go through the details, but I'm just going to have a couple of the highlights. You see, it's a report, as we said again, to Caesar, concerning the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he details, Pilate himself details, what happened in regard to the crucifixion, the kind of man that Jesus was, that Jesus had been granted freedom to teach the people, that wealthy people didn't like Jesus on account of his support for the poor. Again, he goes on, that miraculous events occurred at the tomb of Jesus, that a brilliant light was seen, that an angelic being appeared, that there was an earthquake, and that trained Roman guards collapsed in terror, and they actually saw Jesus risen from the dead, but that they were then given money to keep the whole thing quiet. That's now a historical document. See, people may want to reject the Bible, but you can't reject everything in history. And it all leads to the same place. One final thing. And again, indebted to Bill Cooper. This is in um, his Authenticity of the New Testament, part two. I think this is fabulous. We come across a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. He was the governor of the island of Cyprus. He was appointed by Rome to do this job. Now, Paul specifically says he's the deputy. Now, the word that Paul uses there is exactly the right word. Which if Paul had, sorry, if, if Luke, sorry, correction, if Luke had written this sometime later in the book of Acts, then he wouldn't have known all these details, but he gets everything right. We find that Sergius Paulus was actually appointed in AD 46 by Emperor Claudius. His writings 
Sergius Paulus' writings are quoted by Pliny, who's a very venerated Roman historian. And he only quoted from reliable sources, which means that he must have held Sergius Paulus in very high regard to even quote from him at all. Luke actually says that he was a prudent man. The word that Luke uses there means learned man. Again, I won't go through the scripture, but I encourage you to look at that portion, Acts 13, verses 3 to 12, and you'll see the account of how Sergius Paulus listens to the preaching of Paul and is converted. But the incredible thing is this. As we go on, we find that shortly after his conversion, Sergius Paulus is demoted from proconsul of Cyprus to just looking after the rivers, the river Tiber particularly in Rome. You know, Bill Cooper says this, to go from being the voice of Caesar, one of the top jobs of the empire, to being a comparatively minor civil servant responsible for the upkeep and maintenance of the city's riverbanks, removing rubbish and corpses, is some come down, and it needs explaining. Any Roman official, by the way, would be required to observe pagan rituals and oaths. And that may well be why once he became a Christian, suddenly Sergius Paulus was in a very compromised position if he was to carry on making those oaths and paying homage to these pagan deities when he knew that there was only one God now. Clearly it was a problem for any now follower of Christ such as Sergius Paulus. So what happened? Well, in addition to all of this, news of his conversion would have no doubt got out. And again, Bill Cooper says this, once Sergius Paulus had begun to speak as a Christian instead of as a proconsul, the very voice of Caesar... It would have been realized by his peers in government as well as by Caesar himself. But of course he had an exemplary record. There's nothing recorded that suggests he did anything wrong. So now, just as often happens in business today, Sergius Paulus has seemingly offered this sideways move just to get him out of the way. But in a, in a sense, a very kind of kind way because no harm is done to him other than kind of this seemingly demotion. But the interesting thing is that Sergius Paulus' conversion didn't just have an impact on the officials in Rome. Because it appears to have had a very profound effect on the Apostle Paul himself. Now Paul was out preaching the gospel, preaching about the resurrected Jesus. Sergius Paulus is so amazed by this, he puts his trust in Jesus, he becomes a Christian, which is what we're told in Acts itself. But until this moment, Paul had always gone under his birth name, Saul of Tarsus. Now, from this moment, he adopts the name of Paul, or Paulus. This is, again, a quote from Bill Cooper. says, it's almost unarguable that Sergius Paulus formally adopted Saul. The purpose of such adoption was to give the adoptee the protection both in law and under arms of the adopter. In our culture, we tend to think of adopting children only, but in Roman times, you could be adopted as an adult. It was a very common practice in a number of situations. So much so that we find in the book of Philemon that Paul seemingly had adopted this runaway slave. Bill says this, This would under God have afforded Paul a level of protection against both Jew and and Gentile, which he otherwise would have lacked, and explains on a level which his mere Roman citizenship does not explain why the Roman officials who dealt with Paul treated him so courteously. By Paul's day, Roman citizens were to a penny, but the adopted sons of Rome's nobility were not. It's amazing. You just start to see how all of these things God worked together to allow the, the furtherance and the preaching of the gospel. Okay. You see, we've got all this evidence 
We can prove the Bible is God's word. We can demonstrate that the resurrection is a fact of history. We can show that there are no contradictions. And we can remove all the barriers except one. And that is the problem of the human heart, because that is the heart of the problem. You see, we can, we can present all the evidence, we can, we can show all this stuff, but we can't convince somebody at the level of the heart. You see, we've got one weapon, though, that is a match for all the assaults and vain imaginations of the enemy. And do you know what the Bible tells us that is? It's holiness. Because in Hebrews 12, verse 14, we still follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You see, if we want people to see the Lord, and we were praying earlier, and we're going to continue to pray over the coming weeks for those that are lost, well, then we need to make sure our own lives are holy. See, the world has seldom seen what God can do through a life yielded to him. I think Billy Graham once made a quote to that effect. See, the evidence of a changed life lived in holiness to the Lord is the greatest witness that can be afforded. I just want to read just a couple of scriptures in closing. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So you notice the combination, the resurrection, newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And Paul goes on in verse 22 of Romans 6 and says, But now being made free from sin and become service to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. See the holiness there. Linked again with the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the end, everlasting life. In Philippians 3, Paul says there, But what things were gained to me, those things I counted lost to Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom... I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here we go. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means... I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Folks, the power of the resurrection is the power to totally, radically transform your life. That everything you do is different. And that your life should be a witness to this world that so desperately needs to hear this message. Lord, let's just just bow our hearts. Lord, we just pray that you stir us. Lord, there is no doubt of the sure foundation of our faith. Oh, but Lord, stir us by these things, that we would be witnesses for you in the world Around, uh, surrounding the Lord where you've placed us, Lord, those in our community, those in our workplaces, those in our families. Father, just use us, we pray. As we were saying earlier of Isaiah, whom shall I go, whom shall I send? Well, Lord, we say, Lord, here we are. Send us. We know this is true.
We've been transformed. We know there is in Jesus ourselves. So, Lord, give us the boldness to go and tell this world that needs to hear that Jesus has risen from the dead. We just thank you for these things now, Lord. Just keep us close to you through these coming days and weeks ahead, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.